Welcome to the exam room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian, a.k.a. Dr. V from 33 Charts. If you've been in the exam room before, you know that I occasionally do these solo rants that cover a solo topic from my newsletter. I call these brief encounters, and uh, that's what I've got going on today, a brief encounter, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to all new listeners. By the way, if you are not a subscriber to the 33 Charts newsletter, you need to get yourself over to 33charts.com, hit that 33 mail tab, and get on the list. I do a killer weekly curation newsletter with a whole bunch of quick hits from the most interesting stuff that I found all week. It covers medicine, technology, culture, and other stuff that I think is timely and provocative. I also send a long letter uh, midweek that digs into something in a lot more detail. I don't do the letter real consistently, but I'm getting there. And folks really seem to like uh, this kind of free stream of ideas that I uh, come up with in that longer letter. So get on over there and sign up. We'd love to have you join the community. So a quick trigger warning here. Uh, This post is a little political. I sent the newsletter out earlier and I had a couple of emails back with people saying, what the Sam Hill are you doing? Because for 12 years, I've talked about widgets and EHRs and exam rooms and things like this. And I've even taught my public physician workshop to avoid politics. But as the country moves from Joe Biden as the anti-Trump option to Joe Biden as the leader of the free world, I've been thinking about some of the changes we may see in medicine, media, and technology under his administration. So I thought I'd share some of that with you. I was also told during the election that physician activism is now the latest thing. And to be silent is to be part of the problem. So I guess I'll be part of the solution here. I do have a lot of ideas about physician activism and what happened during the campaign and how social media was used that I'll be sorting through over the coming weeks and, uh, You can tune in here to the exam room or to my newsletter uh, as I think that through. But today I want to drill down on the idea of censorship and content moderation, which really did become a thing during this election, kind of became normalized on some level. And certainly it's something that we all need to think about as citizens and health professionals, especially as we see new legislation in the U.S. coming down the pipe that could affect all of us. This is important because of medical misinformation, which needs to be addressed, but it needs to be balanced with our ability to engage in real discourse over science. All this is really important around COVID, which is what we're just trying to figure out. So a few thoughts on censorship and content moderation. And I'll start with a little history on the evolution of media to kind of set the stage. We can start with the fact that social media platforms have become the new mainstream media for all of us. In a 2019 Pew Research survey, it was found that 55% of Americans report getting their news from social media. That's up from 44% in 2016. 18% of Americans identify social media as their primary source of information with Facebook as their site of choice. Not so surprising, really. Way back when, when traditional print and broadcast media had sole responsibility to inform us, it carried this kind of journalistic obligation of delivering news in a way that was objective and balanced and and real. Of course, all this has gone completely off the rails with cable news, but that's another story. 
But the social media outlets that we saw quoted in that Pew survey have never really assumed this responsibility. In fact, since their inception, they've seen themselves as providing nothing other than a comfortable playground for all of us. Moderation was kind of a dirty word. In fact, it was believed that the wisdom of the crowd would somehow just magically make things go away and make them better. That mindset kind of absolved them from being accountable in any kind of way. In fact, the policing of health information, for example, in the early years of Twitter was seen as the collective moral responsibility of doctors and health professionals. And it was actually something a lot of us kind of liked during those early years. But policing presidents, political packs, and Russian trolls is an entirely other ballgame. So the social media ecosystem changed during the 2016 election when Facebook was actually blamed for Donald Trump's victory. Moderation was once not a thing, but now it's everything. In fact, the tables have turned such that in 2020, the Twitter and Facebook response to political messaging has led to allegations of censorship and political bias. Of course, part of this move was to stem the wild Twitter gyrations of President Donald Trump. We all knew that he was off the hook a lot of times with these tweets, and something, it seemed, had to be done, according to the platform. So they did as we all saw. They flagged and removed tweets that were believed to contain misinformation or abusive stuff. What's important here is that with this, Facebook and Twitter set a precedent. The pickle is that now platforms can't walk it back. They have nominated themselves as the arbiter of truthiness going forward. But to me, this is both good and bad. And to eat the dog food, I've been hollering for moderation around anti-vaxxers for years. The group of pediatricians fighting the socially organized anti-vax movement a decade ago begged Twitter for help. We would have killed for it. We didn't have the faith and wisdom of the crowd or the digital literacy of parents to figure this all out. And at the time, clamoring for moderation seemed like the right thing. But recently, I'm coming to realize that this level of control from above comes with a certain cost. And what's that cost? Well, look what happens when Harvard and Stanford scientists raise simple questions about the prevailing approach to COVID. Their call for dialogue was initially banned by Google as it didn't meet our singular view of COVID policy. That was the Great Barrington Declaration. You can disagree with the Great Barrington approach, but you can never disagree with the importance of, uh, of doctors and scientists and health policy experts sharing ideas. And as it turns out, the conversation spawned by this very statement in places like the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and even in JAMA show the critical conversation is part of our social and scientific emergence around COVID. We need diversity in our views. But the climate of social media has trained us to see the world in the binary. We are this or that, zero or one. We're black or white. We're Jon Snow or Great Barrington. And when you, when you listen to the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg debate on the Jon Snow and Great Barrington controversy, you can see how epidemiologists handle nuance and compromise and trade-off. And it's this insight that's missing. We need more opposing dialogue not less. But it appears that we may be inching towards deeper regulation of what we say. A little background. Until now, internet companies have enjoyed protection from liability under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That's the foundational law that says online platforms are not liable for things their users post on them. 
with some exceptions, of course. But while considered central to the modern flow of information on public platforms, this protective law may soon go the way of the hula hoop. As part of this evolution of social media into mainstream media and now into public utility, there have been a number of legislative proposals in the U.S. Senate to amend Section 230. But interestingly, the president-elect has suggested that Section 230 should be entirely revoked. And with that, companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter should be held responsible for what appears on their platform. This is one of President-elect Biden's few recorded opinions on Section 230 from a December 2019 interview done with the New York Times. Quote, Section 230 should be revoked, immediately should be revoked, number one, for Zuckerberg and other platforms. It should be revoked because it is not merely an internet company. It is propagating falsehoods they know to be false. And we should be setting standards not unlike the Europeans are doing relative to privacy. You guys, referencing the New York Times editor conducting the interview, still have editors. I'm sitting with them. Not a joke. There is no editorial impact at all on Facebook. None. None whatsoever. It's irresponsible. It's totally irresponsible. End quote. So this quote is kind of a big deal, but we got very little attention during the time of the campaign. And honestly, when I read this, it's unclear whether he's blowing steam or if this really represents a hardline position that will spell change for all of us. But honestly, it's hard for me to imagine that Facebook, Twitter, and Google will ultimately be exposed to civil damages for tweets and search results. Galad Edelman in Wired suggested that this new president a precedent, rather, of truth moderation will just go away after Trump is gone. Quote, so even if the companies don't change anything at all after today, I still think the problem of disinformation is going to at least seem less urgent to the broader public and the political press, if not the researchers, activists, and journalists specifically focused on it starting in a few months, end quote. But honestly here, I'm skeptical. I think this move to massage the prevailing narrative is bigger than putting a digital muzzle on the president. The genie is officially out of the bottle with respect to moderation, and everyone's going to be holding Twitter accountable for their own crazy brand of truth. My skepticism around all this is supported by a clear trend towards truth moderation happening in other places. Editorial macromanagement among the mainstream media, and that is the old mainstream media, reflects rising intolerance for opposing views. To understand how this works, read about the experience of Barry Weiss and the recent exit from her editorial position at the New York Times. Weiss, who was actually a centrist with strong anti-Trump views, was forced from the paper over her failure to goose-step in time with the gray lady's ideological monoculture. She remarked on Twitter, quote, A new consensus has emerged in the press. The truth isn't a process of collective discovery— but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else, end quote. Oof. So for a deeper dive into the ideological homogeneity eating in America's newsroom, the New York Magazine Intelligencer this week has a solid overview of what's happening. And again, all these links are on the 33 charts post on about November 11th, 2020. I'll also add that this activism isn't just limited to newspapers. We're seeing it on Med Twitter. There's the emergence of the medical mob, which is a huge problem. What we see there is what happens when 
dangerous groupthink has people seeing one thing one way, all of it happening in this gargantuan filter bubble we call Twitter. We saw this kind of mob groupthink with bed, med bikini as well as the tragic handling of the two young Korean physicians who published a paper on females uh, intubating in Korean emergency rooms. Again, I'll put links on uh, on the site that you can click through and see how this was all handled. There is this emerging mob mentality that believes we can adjudicate our differences with coordinated cancel tactics, intimidation, and bullying. This absolutely has to stop. So how do we balance the mitigation of medical misinformation with our ability to express concern or even participate in meaningful scientific or cultural debate? It's tough. Here's a thought experiment to illustrate how tough this is. During our process of understanding COVID in the months ahead, for example, what happens if some piece of contradictory knowledge is discovered? What if a scientist or citizen scientist legitimately identifies a weakness in a New England Journal of Medicine study concerning an established COVID containment strategy? Is this public discussion prohibited if Jack Dorsey considers it a threat to the prevailing policy and ultimately the public well-being? Perhaps it could be adjudicated through Mark Zuckerberg's new kangaroo court. That is his new Facebook Supreme Court of Appeals that is linked in my 33 Charts piece. This is where you take your beef if your account gets canceled or something gets blocked. But these kinds of questions about accurate and inaccurate can go on and on and on, and I'm not sure that we'll ever really get ahead of them. This is very nuanced stuff. The control of medical misinformation and disinformation needs attention, but how we do it is frighteningly complex. But is all this really Jack Dorsey's burden to figure out? Is this Mark Zuckerberg's job to figure all this out? Author Tom Standage in Writing on the Wall suggests that, quote, those in authority always squawk, it seems, when access to publishing is broadened, end quote. But Supreme Court Justice Brandeis suggested that the solution to bad speech is actually more speech, not for silence. This follows from the earliest social media wisdom I received about health information and reputation management. That is, that the solution to pollution is dilution. That quote's credited to Andy Cernovitz, and it was popularized by Lee Acey, director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media. And rather than trying to control information, perhaps efforts should focus on how citizens process and consume information. I've suggested that there is a dual responsibility around media, the responsibility of those who create the media and the countering duty of the consumer. We as people that read tweets and read newspapers have some duty to understand our sources of information. And as I told my patients during the earliest days of the internet, when they were first accessing wild information on their own, with great access comes great responsibility. So as we've seen during our brief journey with COVID, science is a process of iteration, challenge, and discovery. Unfortunately, it's been packaged, sold, and exploited as a politically motivated black and white enterprise with boundaries that must be obeyed in the public commons. To not obey the prevailing orthodoxy is to face censorship. But the scientific process and scientific communication will never thrive in the face of editorial or legislative tyranny. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Again, if you are not a subscriber to the 33 Charts email newsletter, go to 33charts.com and sign up to get stuff like this in your inbox and uh, updates on what we're doing here in the exam room. Thanks for listening.
This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.